Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast. Hi, it's Richard here, your faithful announcer. We are so glad you are listening. Casting our podcast on the waters of providence, trusting we encourage growing, biblical, dynamic, soul-satisfying prayer lives which glorify God. From the pen of Martin Lloyd-Jones, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. John Owen adds, I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with Him. J.C. Riley adds his insight, Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. And now to our fine host, Fred. Thank you, Richard. Once again, Fred here for the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. I am the host, as you have been told already a couple of times, and we're back to, I'm pretty excited, we're back to a layman's commentary on the whole Bible. Today we're looking at humility, and one of the reasons I'm pretty excited is because next time we should be able to get to Genesis 1-1 in February, prayerfully, and we have talked about, we've introduced the subject, humility and faith in our reading our Bibles. And then we took a little deeper look at how faith, how critical faith is in getting food to our souls through our Bibles. And so today we're going to take a little deeper dive into humility. And we will never become the mature Christians that we long to be and that God wants us to be, that we were meant to be in the will of God if we do not come to the Bible with faith and humility. So today, what we're going to do then is define the humility I am talking about, and then we're going to look at the devil and his fall, which gives us an insight into the depravity of ourselves as well, because we have fallen in the same way. And then we are going to look at an example of someone who comes to the Word of God, not even on purpose to begin with, but comes to the Word of God argues some, and then in humility understands the truth of God. And we'll contrast her, that might give you a clue as to who we're talking about, we will contrast her quickly with the people who were not humble enough to listen to the Word of God and respond in that humility. Now, again, we're going to define humility for us as Christians the type of humility we are talking about, because there's a lot when we talk about humans, one another, we are complex beings, bigger on the inside, you might say. And so there's many facets to pride and all the other affections, our emotions. And when we think about humility, I'm not talking about bare-faced arrogance, that ugly attitude that some people have about themselves that make them hard to be around. They're really off-putting. But sometimes arrogance may be based in the truth. For instance, surgeons very often get bad rap or reputation for you young people (laughs) over arrogance. Many years ago, I was mentoring a young man. I knew his mother. I didn't know his childhood. I didn't know his mother until 
He was grown up. She was an older lady in one of the Sunday school classes. But I was working with her son, who after a life of struggle was coming back to his faith. And he was early 40s, I think. Through his mother's prayers over the years, he did want to reestablish his trust in Jesus, which was great. And that's why I was working with him. I was discipling him. And while we were working together, he needed a kidney operation. And I don't know the details there either, but it was a pretty serious operation. And he needed to go in and have his kidneys obviously worked on. I had been visiting him in the hospital on the ramp up to his operation. We prayed together early morning of his operation. And then later in the day of his surgery that he was supposed to get his surgery, a couple of hours after I left, he called and asked if I could come back. He was in distress and he did not get his operation. So I went in and then he related to me that while everything was prepped, he was ready to go. He was in, you know, the operation gown. Uh, he was in the pre-op room. Everything had been done. His IVs were put in. Everything was ready to go. And the doctor came in, the surgeon. He came in to tell this young man what was going to happen, what they needed to do, and how it was going to go. And then somehow, in the midst of their conversation, I think it might have been a tattoo, the, the doctor became aware that my friend had been in prison. So he then asked my friend if he had been tested for AIDS. Obviously, my friend, not the doctor. And my friend said, no, he hadn't. At that response, the, the surgeon then pulled off his gloves, jerked off his scrubs, and stormed out of the room in, in an agitated state. He was angry, telling everyone that he would not do surgery until this guy had been tested for AIDS. Now, I need to tell you, I don't know what kind of danger the doctor may or may not have been in. You know, I'm not that smart. I don't know if that was really a danger for the, uh, for the doctor in the operating room. But whether it was or wasn't, his display, his arrogance to storm out of the room the way he did was obviously inappropriate. So whether he was in danger or not is beside the point. That's not the way we're supposed to treat each other. My friend was devastated. He was embarrassed. And then he was worried because his operation, his surgery, got put off. As I talked to him and we prayed together again, one of the things I mentioned, which is true, is that surgeons can be arrogant. And the best of them are really incredible people at what they do. And they do something, all of them probably do something that 99% of us can't do, maybe 99.5% of us can't do, but the best ones do. They're better than 99.5% of the people in the whole wide world, maybe even less than that, or maybe even, maybe even more than that. So there is a basis for their pride in what they do, for their confidence in what they do. That, of course, is not arrogance, which is what that doctor displayed. They are gifted sometimes conceited, but they have, like I said, good reason. But that's not what I'm talking about. The pride that I'm talking about is the pride that we all suffer from. We imagine ourselves, even as we grow up in our natural state, we do grow up some, but we imagine ourselves as the center of the universe. We really do. 
That's the essence of our fallen nature. Now, when we come to Christ, there is obviously a great humility, or we never would. We never would come to Christ in salvation if we hadn't been humbled in such a way. And we understand, especially in the moment of our salvation, the prayer of the tax gatherer, have mercy on me, a sinner, yet we quickly forget and our spiritual growth, the rest of our life, it's a lifelong effort to submit to God with the understanding that we are not the most important person in all of creation. And God is a person. He's a personality. And he's a complicated personality. And he's, he's beyond what we can truly or naturally understand about him. We do know enough to know that there's a lawgiver. That's in the book of Romans. That's our conscience. We also know enough to look around us and say, all this stuff really couldn't have come from nothing. But we push those things down. And even at that, outside of Christ, we still truly do consider ourselves the most important person in the whole universe. And you may scoff at that, but just think for a second. Think about the things that boil your blood, that makes you mad. And if you were an old man like me, you might shake your fist and yell, get off my lawn sort of stuff. That kind of anger, that kind of self-righteousness, we call it. And the only way we can truly mature, especially in the Christian life, is for the realization that you and I, we didn't create ourselves. We are not the arbiters of what is morally correct. One of the things in the early days after I became a Christian that my mom used to say was she considered God unfair. Now, I'm the last person in the world who should be in charge of what's fair and not fair. But the second to the last person that should ever be in charge of what's fair or not fair is my mom. And you know in your soul you're not able to judge that perfectly either. So we didn't create ourselves. We're not the arbiter of morality. We are not the most beautiful people. And whatever physical attributes we might have, we have little to do with them. We're born with most of them. We might refine refine them a little, but they are quickly deteriorating in all of us. We're not the most brilliant people on the planet, let alone in the universe. And in fact, the reality is we really should conclude that we don't know everything that we think we know, because we don't. I remember quickly arguing or talking to a young man about Christ, and we were going back and forth, and he said, confidently, arrogantly, I don't trust in anything I don't understand. I think we talked about this once, but I replied to him, really, somehow, in this universe, light is both particle and wave. Sometimes it acts like a particle. Sometimes it acts like a wave. It's both of those things at the same time. So if you don't, if you don't believe in anything you don't understand, then you are standing here in the dark. And he said, well, I guess I am. To which I replied, more than you even think. But the reality is, and we'll talk about this sometime in the future, this ended up not going exactly the way I thought it should, or I thought it would, as far as this episode is concerned. But we don't know everything that we think we know. Not only are we not the most brilliant people in the world, we need to be humble enough to know that we don't know everything we think we know. But we do feel that way. In fact, in my culture, here in the United States, our problem at this moment is we have about 300 million people 
who believe that we ourselves are good enough, are qualified to throw the first stone. And you remember the story in John 6, I think. You remember the story, maybe it's John 8. You remember the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the crowd, the cancel crowd, you might call them, the cancel culture people, dragged her into the presence of Jesus. They wanted to test him because they wanted to stone her to death with rocks. That's what stoned meant. Throw rocks at them till they died. And there are many people who make the point that there wasn't a man in that situation. They didn't bring him before Jesus. Maybe they stoned him to death before they got there. I don't think they did, but maybe. Anyway, they brought this woman caught in adultery, which she didn't deny, to Jesus. And Jesus' response was, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bent down and wrote in the sand. And nobody knows exactly what he wrote. But over the next few minutes, in shame, one by one, every one of those cancel culture warriors walked out. They wanted to kill this woman. But one by one, they walked away. And the question is, why? And I'm of the school that Jesus wrote the sins of those people either individually or categorically. Everyone in this cancel crowd looked down in the sand and saw sin that they themselves were involved in. So when he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone, one by one they were convicted. In the face of the truth of their own sins, they walked away. I believe that's what happened. And that, my beloved brothers, is the essence of our sin, our sin nature. It's our insistence that we are so much better than everyone around us, we can throw those stones at the lowly sinners who are in our way. And that's where my culture, ashamedly, that's where my culture is right now. And when events happen in the United States, people rush to whatever platform they think they have television, radio, social media, whatever it is, they run to those platforms and start expounding about the evils of the people involved in that incident. And 99% of the time, they don't even actually know what's going on. But that's the pride I'm talking about. That's the human condition that moves one another, that moves ourselves to look at someone else and say, what a rotten person they are. And the guy before the tax gatherer, the Pharisee who said, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like that tax gatherer. That's what he was doing. That's the pride I'm talking about. You and I are not the center of the universe. And when we forget that, we become very ugly people. And we forget it all too often. Now, we do have an example, a very stark example of just this. That's where we're going to go to next. So just really quickly to wrap that up, you're not as smart, you're not as pretty, you're not as moral as you think you are, and you don't know as much. The evidence around you, we don't know enough to be very proud of what we think we know. So we are none of those things. But when it comes to our fallen natures and we look inside our hearts, we know our awful sins and our sinful thoughts. We want to take a look at another being. It happens to be the devil who can be very instructive. His fall is very instructive for us. 
And I need to preface this with two things. I believe Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 speak in part of the devil's fall. He was created as a beautiful angel, the highest angel above all the other angels, and he fell. And I believe, like I said, in part, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 speak of that fall. Now, I want to preface that preface with this. I don't understand the mechanics of that. I don't know how that worked out, but the Bible is clear that the devil fell. And you can read Ezekiel 28 if you'd like. We're going to concentrate on Isaiah 14. And we find from Isaiah 14, starting in verse 11, and we'll just go through. I'm not going to read all the verses. But we find in verse 11, this description of the devil. Your pomp and the music of your harps. So he had pomp. And whatever the music of your harps were, whether he wrote them or sang them, they were his as well. And then verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. He was beautiful. He was perfect. In his outward being, he was perfect. And in fact, in Ezekiel, we read in verse 12 of chapter 28 in Ezekiel, that the devil had the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom and beauty. His place in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, is described in the next few verses. Verse 15 of Ezekiel 28 says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were, you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. That unrighteousness was found in him. In verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And then the word says that God cast him to the ground. Back to Isaiah, though, Isaiah 14. He describes it this way, starting in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. And then God speaks judgment about him. That is the pride that we all have because we say to ourselves, I will do this and that. And I am smart enough to judge those people I see on TV. And I am smart enough to hate those people who sin differently than I sin. That's the humility I'm talking about. And we can contrast that in Luke 22, the humility God wants us to have and to strive for and to pray over and to learn from the knowledge of his word says this, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. That's the humility I'm talking about. And if we don't come before the holy God of the universe with that humility, our growth will be stunted. And we can't forget where we came from. And that our inner man struggles with our outer man, the flesh. Because our flesh still thinks it's the smartest and the prettiest and the most moral. So we see the ugliness of the devil was born in his pride over his beauty. Instead of the humility that he is a created being. In John chapter 4, we see the story of the woman at the well. 
So Jesus is walking through. He's headed to Galilee, I believe. And he comes to a well, and his disciples go to get them something to eat. And he rests because it's in the middle of the day, and it's hot. And here come the woman. And in the middle of the day, in the heat, is not the normal time to come to the well and get your water for the day. That's usually done early in the morning. But as we will find out, I believe there's a reason this woman is there at noon. I think because she's ashamed of her lifestyle. I hope you indulge me. I'm going to speak to this in the vernacular of my day. She didn't want to come in the morning when the cancel culture people were there because they would have canceled her. So she came to the well. John 4, it starts in verse 7. She was a woman of Samaria. And Jesus said to her, so he started the conversation, give me a drink. Like I said, his disciples were gone. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then we're told, we're reminded that Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So basically, she's saying, Why are you talking to me? I'm the victim here. That's the import of her question. You guys pick on me all the time. What are you bothering me for, asking me for water? Now you'll notice he doesn't take the bait. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you water. Her response to his offer for living water, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? She may have said it this way, You're a liar. You don't have any water. Because then she goes on to say, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us water from this well, and he drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So who do you think you are? Our father is Jacob. Our side's better than your side, even though you mistreat us. I'm tempted to believe that's the attitude she spoke to him with. But again, he doesn't take the bait. He answers and says, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Interesting, the woman says. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She kind of missed the eternal life part, didn't she? a little bit. I want some of that. I deserve some of that. There's something in it for me. I'll take it. Verse 15. So then he said, go and call your husband and come here. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to give you this water. He just said, go and call your husband. Come here. Her response to that was, what are you talking about? I don't have a husband. I'm all alone. Nobody's for me. Maybe the implication is if you'd give me some of that water, that's what I deserve, but I don't have a husband. Again, Jesus calls out the truth. You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now she's struck. How did he know that? She's never seen him before. She comes to the well late in the day just for that purpose. But she knew she didn't know him. So then she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. But our guys are still better than yours because our fathers worshipped at this mountain. And you, you sinners, 
you people who oppress us, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What's really fantastic about that is that God, God's word has power. In essence, she's saying, you described me perfectly. And she didn't run away or yell and scream at her sin. She knew about her sin. She knew that. She probably said, like David said, my sin is ever before me. But I'm already justified. I have a religion, and it's better than yours. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and to truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then he says, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and truth. And true worship contains humility, doesn't it? Then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeah, 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 she says. The promise is coming, and when he comes, then we'll know. We'll have the proof. Then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the word. That's the truth of the word. And at that point, the disciples came back. They started talking to him. What are you speaking to that woman for, that Samaritan? But she left. She took her water pot. She went into the city and she told the guys there, I think you should go see this guy. He might be the Christ. In essence, the word of God, that's Jesus who's called the word of God. The word of God spoke to me. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Then a little later, we find that her message was effective because they all went to see Jesus. And then it says, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Because she was humble enough, even though she argued, she was humble enough to listen to the word of God. She now has become an evangelist. That's why we need to have a humble soul, because we're not worthy of throwing the first stone, no matter how we feel. Now, just after this, in the book of John, he heals a lame man, makes him, tells him to get up off his pallet, the thing that they were carrying around on, carrying him around on, get up and walk home and pick up your pallet. So he did, it happened to be on the Sabbath. So they started persecuting Jesus. They started picking on him. And the Bible says in verse 16 of John 5, And for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. That's John 5, 16 through 17. And then in verse 18, the Bible says this, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, which, scripturally speaking, is the witness of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there you see the difference, and it continues in our spiritual lives as well. 
as long as we refuse to come to the Word of God humbly, we are going to struggle with that attitude these people struggled with. We need to talk about this more, and we will in the future, but we've been here a long while already. So you're asking me, so what? For that, I would turn to Psalm 34 when David says, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Only the humble rejoice at the glory of God. The woman, the Samaritan woman at this well had to humble herself to the revealed word of God. And when she did, she found eternal life. She argued with the word who was Jesus. But in the end, the truth and the power of God brought her to a saving faith. On the other hand, the Jews in chapter 5 ignored the healing of a man who couldn't walk before, but now he can. They ignored Jesus, who told them plainly, many times, I believe, over his ministry, the Sabbath is for men and not men for the Sabbath. They looked right in the face of the Word of God. That's John 1.1. And Jesus, again, a good teacher always repeats himself, I would imagine Jesus had said over and over again, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They looked in the face of the Word of God, the truth of God, the way to salvation, and the life giver and the eternal life giver, and they reacted in hatred. We are going to cancel you. It was a little more serious than that, than canceling in my culture at this point in time. We want to kill you because you don't agree with us about the Sabbath. And then later, just in a little bit, they'll say, look at the Bible. There's no prophet from Galilee. And they ignored the path, all the places he had lived in his early life that God had led his father Joseph to take him. He was in the line of the house of David. And they didn't even listen to his works, their pride, thinking they knew where the prophet would come from, thinking they knew exactly what the Sabbath was for, thinking that they were smarter than this hick from Galilee, that pride, that pride that we all have, kept them from eternal life. The warning of the woman at the well for us is for our spiritual lives as well. We cannot renew our minds to salvation or to spiritual growth if we do not come to the Word of God with humility, I'll remind you again of something I told you early on and have mentioned a couple times before. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare with the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You read your Bible, and you read it carefully, and you will see all those sins that Jesus wrote in the sand, and the Holy Spirit will convict you of them. But you come to the Bible, and like I've said before, we're not the boss of it, it's the boss of us. But if you come to the Bible as boss of it, your mind will never be renewed as it should be. That's the so what. Thank you, Jesus, for today. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your message, Lord Jesus. And I bow before you also in, hum in humility, confessing my sins as I look up, watch TV, or listen to news, and my blood 
boils at the pride and the arrogance and the lack of submission to you. Forgive me for those, Lord Jesus. Train me to a greater and greater degree to pray for them that are my enemies. And even if all I can pray is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, because you forgave me when I didn't know either. Let that be my prayer. In this coming year, sweet Jesus, when we all turn and commit to reading the Bible all the way through, help your people to read your word in humility and conform to your glory, believing in faith who you say you are and your attributes, and then conform also to the worthy walk that thou hast called us to. In your providence, use this podcast, this message today, to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the good of your children. Lord Jesus, it's beyond me, certainly, but thou art the God of the impossible, and we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. We are commended one another today to hear the words of Isaiah, the words of the Lord recorded by Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. But to this one, that's the Lord declaring that, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word in this moment. That's the real so what, isn't it? To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. May we all pray for one another that we would tremble at his word.